Welcome to Thriving Educators. I am Brian Langley. In this episode, I speak with Jenna Engel about how people learn to read and what it means for the classroom. Jenna is currently a third grade teacher with over 15 years of experience across Michigan and in different elementary roles. More, she possesses a passion for the ins and outs of teaching reading. Enjoy. Jenna Engel, thank you so much for being on the show. Welcome. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here. So to help us guide through this discussion of how kids learn to read, uh, we're going to reference an article from Education Week from October 2019 written by two Sarahs, Sarah Schwartz and Sarah Sparks, who are both journalists for Ed Week. And that article is called, How Do Kids Learn to Read? Uh, I'll be sure to link to the article in the show notes as you may be interested in checking it out for yourself. I found it to be an efficient, useful resource detailing where we're at with the research surrounding reading. And so Jenna, one of the first things in the article that I found super important was this idea that learning to read is considerably more unnatural than learning to speak. Can you talk me through that? Yeah, so the idea of learning to read being unnatural has a lot to do with how our brains are wired. Um, infants and toddlers naturally start picking up and imitating sounds and speech, and so they begin to develop an understanding of speech through the language interactions occurring with them and around them. In fact, one of the predictors of later reading development is infants and toddlers who've had more conversational interactions with their caregivers. For example, speaking with a baby rather than to a baby. So a caregiver might say something to a baby while walking through the grocery store. Something like, wow, look at all the bright red apples here. And then they would pause for the baby to make a sound or a noise or even a smile and then respond again with something like, yes, you see those shiny apples too. Let's get some to take home with us. So basically they're having this back and forth kind of conversation, um, even though the baby does not yet have formal language skills. So speaking is something that comes natural because our brains are ready for understanding and producing language without explicit instruction and actually learning how to speak. Okay, but I get the idea that reading is not like that. Right, so our brains, when we read, they're not wired for knowing how to read. In order to learn to read, the connection between spoken language and written words does need to be explicitly taught. It's not something that just gets picked up naturally. So an example I always think of is my son right now. He just turned five years old last month, and I feel like I'm living this reading world with him daily. Um, he's learned his letters and sounds, and he's starting to sound out some of the words in the books we read. So I've been able to see him starting to think through and make these connections as he's getting more and more interested in printed words. So he's always asking me, what does that say, Mom? Or... Sometimes when my husband and I try to spell a word around him, so, you mm -hmm. know, he doesn't know what we're talking about. Done that before. As parents do, right? <laughs> so now he'll start asking me, what did you spell? Or mm -hmm. what do those letters mean, Mom? 
and he is trying to figure it out for himself. But if he hadn't been explicitly taught letters and sounds, it would actually be much more challenging for him to try to make sense of anything that we were um, saying or the print that we were looking at. And he may not even be interested the way he is right now. Okay. So I say all that to, to basically say that explicitly teaching how written letters represent spoken sounds, he's able to understand there's a code to decipher in order to make meaning. So when he's asking, what does that say? He knows that those letters uh, represent something. Mm -hmm. When I was teaching kindergarten, it was always um, it was always really interesting to see how students would attempt to write but didn't have a concept of individual words yet. So they might write a string of letters that for them represents whole sentences. Mm -hmm, right. And it always uh, makes me think about when you hear a song on the radio or wherever you listen to music, and then later see the lyrics written out or printed out somewhere, and then you realize you've been singing the words wrong <laughs> all along. Yeah, done that. Yeah, so while talking is learned naturally, reading is unnatural and requires explicit instruction. So here's the part where I'm gonna try not to get too nerdy. I have been fascinated by the past few decades of brain research regarding how the brain works in the process of reading and learning to read. And so I've personally been studying this research for several years now. Okay. This, this body of research is often what people call the science of reading, which seems to be more at the forefront of lots of educational conversations right now. Mm -hmm. um, the science of reading, however, is actually not new. Technology advances in the last three decades or so have given us a peek inside the reading brain. Without getting too in-depth, scientists have studied the physical eye movements of students while reading, along with brain scans, in order to target all aspects of reading. So one of the significant findings from this research is that fluent readers actually do visually process every individual letter of print. It just happens really fast. Mm -hmm. So in order for reading to occur, the brain takes in information from this visual processing system into both the orthographic processing system and phonological processing system, which these are the areas that help the brain recognize letters and their corresponding sounds. And then it connects to other areas of the brain, which help determine meaning. So we're born with the visual parts and the speech and language parts of the brain, but we're not born with the connection between the two that enables us to read. These pathways through the brain are not established until letters, sounds, and patterns are taught. And then through repeated systematic sequential exposure and instruction, these pathways then rewire, they grow, they develop over and over into um, helping us be more and more proficient at word recognition, kind of like exercising a muscle. One thing I failed to appreciate before reading this article was the different ways different languages approach reading. Uh, English, which is the only language that I'm fluent in, of course uses letters for sounds that make up spoken words. Other languages are like English too, I studied a little Spanish in high school, and it used an alphabet similar to English. 
But languages like Chinese are very different. So I imagine that when we research the best ways to teach reading, we have to specifically consider our English language. So one of the advantages, it seems, of English is that most words can be sounded out if you know the sounds. And I think these sounds are called phonemes or are they graphemes? I don't know. Can you help me understand these two terms? Yeah, so I found it really interesting as an English speaker as well, the only language that I speak, that our alphabetic language actually does help us to decode new words. Though this actually, as a teacher, I think about it, may present different challenges for our students who are non-native English speakers or mm -hmm. English learners. So English is what's known as a phonetic language, though it is proven to be one of the most um, or one of the more challenging ones for learning to read. Okay. But this means if you know all the letters of the alphabet, just 26 for English, and their corresponding sounds, which there are 44, so you'll notice there are more sounds than mm -hmm. there are letters, and um, this helps you be set for decoding most words. So back to your question about phonemes and graphemes, then phonemes are the smallest individual sounds that make up a spoken word. So for example, a word like cat is made up of three phonemes, k, a, t. A word like cheese is also made up of three phonemes, ch, e, z. So then graphemes are the written counterparts. They are the letter okay. or letter combinations used to spell the phoneme. So again, word nerd that I am, you mm -hmm. can remember the difference between the two by looking at the parts of the words. Graph in grapheme means to write and phon or phone in phoneme means sound. That's helpful. <laughs> All right, so the authors indicate that systematic explicit phonics instruction has been shown to be the most effective way to help students with sounding out written words. Um, what does that look like in practice? It's a really big question. Okay. In practice, systematic explicit phonics instruction can look slightly different depending on grade level or student age, where they're at in their reading process. Okay. Um, so the concept that the instruction is explicit means really that direct instructions in letters and sounds is given in a clearly defined way. Students are not expected to discover sound spelling relationships on their own or through any type of exploration because the information they need is fully explained. Um, this looks like teachers using signals or prompts to elicit student responses. And then these become regular routines or procedures for students to follow. And that's what makes it systematic. Okay. Many of us know or have, have seen this as following the I do, we do, you do progression okay. mm -hmm. or that gradual release. Um, but often we'll hear the word sequential along with systematic and explicit because instruction that follows a defined scope and sequence is designed to facilitate learning especially across grade levels. So this sequence follows a progression of word reading development that is cumulative and builds on previous learning, beginning with phonological and phonemic awareness, um, building up to decoding word recognition, things like morphology or what do word parts mean, um, and even spelling. So to 
make that a little more clear. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll give a few examples of what these routines might look like in a classroom. Okay, thank you. So, in, um, for example, in kindergarten, a phonemic awareness activity might have students using a physical block or counter to represent each sound in a word. So the teacher might say something like, the word is cat, say the word, and students will respond. Cat. Now, the teacher would say, move a block for each sound. What was the word? Oh yeah, cat. And students would say cat. Right. And then they would go through, what's the first sound? K. The middle sound, a. The last sound, t. And it's this repetition of that routine that um, they're working through that makes it systematic and explicit at the same time. Okay. Um, another fun one that I like to do is, sometimes it's called robot reading, where okay. The robot, maybe it's the teacher, or later on, maybe it's a student leader, uh, but the robot can only say one sound at a time. And so students have to determine the word by putting together those sounds after they hear them. Okay. Um, it, it's similar. A similar one is also singing. Maybe the robot is a singing robot, and they sing out the word really long, and then kids have to figure out what the word is. Um, Similar activities or routines can be done with second or third graders with the teacher using longer words or even deleting sounds or whole syllables from words, um, such as um, telling students, say, stop without the s. And so students have to think through that and come up with top. Okay. Um, an example in some of our higher grades, if you're really trying to think of what does this, you know, what does this look like for my students, it really is different across grade levels. So in third or fourth, these routines might be focused more on spelling patterns or syllable types. So I teach third grade right now, third graders might follow a specific procedure for what to do when they read big words. Um, the procedure might follow something similar to number one, box the familiar suffixes. Number okay. two, circle familiar prefixes. So they're looking at the parts of the word first mm -hmm. instead of sound by sound reading. Then um, identify the vowels. Use your knowledge of syllables that has been explicitly taught um, to decode the vowel sounds. And then the next step would be try the word to see if it makes sense. Or you might change the vowel sound if it's not sounding right. Okay. And then put all of that together. So it's kind of this routine that's that you go through the same steps every time you approach an unfamiliar big word. Um, so these routines, uh, there are so many different routines that can be practiced and learned and done over and over again. And that's what builds that proficiency over time that comes through the explicit instruction and that systematic sequence. So this approach is what has been, what research has shown to be most effective for all students, especially for those who struggle. Um, the article that you mentioned at the beginning mm -hmm. has a really good section on why it might seem that some students didn't need or didn't receive phonics instruction, but still learn to read anyway. That's super worth checking out. Okay, thanks. So cueing is a strategy that has been used to help students learn to read. Uh, what is cueing? How is it different from phonics instruction? And why is it less effective as a method for teaching reading? Well, as the article mentioned, 
EQing is one of those concepts that has recently become somewhat controversial in these so-called reading wars that are happening amongst educators for, for years and years, not okay. just right now. Um, through um, between researchers and the media, there's these reading wars. They're talking about what's going on, what are we doing? And the three cueing system is the one that comes up most often. It's actually based on strategies that are used by unskilled readers, not what we know proficient readers do. Okay. So this means teachers might be prompting students while they are reading to guess at a word based on less helpful clues, such as meaning or background knowledge the student has, maybe the structure of how a word fits into a sentence, or prompts for the visual form of the word, like the way the word is shaped. Teachers using cueing might say things like, look at the pictures and guess as their first prompt, or possibly, what do you think might make sense here? rather than first pointing the student toward the letters and sounds that make up the word. Okay. The, so these might feel like helpful prompts for early readers, and I, I've done them myself. We know that teachers have done this, mm -hmm. but it quickly um, falls apart as helpful clues or cues when reading becomes more demanding or less predictable. Um, and in later years, when the text is less reliant on pictures, these are not as helpful cues. And so students' um, understanding tends to fall apart a little bit. Okay. In contrast, when we think about phonics, the initial prompts teachers of explicit phonics would use would be saying something like, look carefully at all the letters. Sound it out. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. This is a more productive strategy than cueing and a better habit for students to build and better supports their reading experiences later on. So this means cueing ends up being something that could hinder students in the long run and may slow down word recognition and even slow down adequate acquisition of phonics skills. So cueing strategies are less reliable and less efficient than using knowledge of phonics to decode a word. Um, there's this famous study that is referenced often that, as far as I know, is just always called the baseball study. Okay. And it, it's about students who were assessed on a passage of reading about baseball. It was determined that students who had greater background knowledge of baseball, even if they were considered less skilled readers, ended up having better comprehension of the reading passage than those considered stronger readers who didn't have background knowledge of baseball. So if you were to tell students to guess a word in the baseball passage, but they don't have a lot of vocabulary about baseball, mm -hmm. it would feel very challenging for that student and even cause frustration. It's more effective to prompt for phonics skills first and then use context later to help infer the meaning. That's interesting that you bring that up. I've heard of that study before. Oftentimes um, in the context of how important content knowledge or background knowledge is to comprehension. Yes. yes. <laughs> but then it also does make sense too in the in learning to read too because if you if you have very little context of a situation you're trying to read new words in that context you might have no idea how to pronounce these words. Right. Um, you're 
asking a student to come up with something they, they don't have any background knowledge on. So. so what about sight words? What should we do with all these kind of words? Uh, sight words. So I recently watched a video. Here's a little plug for some science of reading resources from Amplify called okay. Brain Builders. It's a series of <clears throat> um, little videos that are created for kids but I highly recommend them for teachers or parents as well. But one of the episodes is called Every Word Wants to Be a Sight Word When It Grows Up, okay. which is a super cute title. But I actually found it to be the most helpful way for me to think about sight words. Um, a sight word is just a word that you recognize instantly and without effort. We want our students to build a repertoire of words that they can recognize quickly or by sight. But that doesn't mean that we have to forget about phonics. Mm -hmm. So a specific example is the word friend. Students don't need to memorize what the word looks like if they can use phonics to help them. Many words are decodable except for one unusual vowel sound. So if a student is prompted not by something like flashcard memorization techniques, okay. But when they're not immediately recognizing a word, you can still prompt them to read through the sounds. So in the word friend, they might look at the word and say, er, maybe they're putting it back together, fr, they see that I, eh, and then they see the end of the word, and fr, I, and, and as they start putting those sounds together, um, the idea is that they then will recognize the word as friend because of the phonics, the phonetic sounds that they've put together. Okay. So even though there's that irregular, tricky vowel sound in the middle. So when you're prompting students with a focus on phonics first, you're really showing how any word can become a sight word with time through repeated practice. Mm -hmm. So looking at friend, every time they read the word friend, if they're sounding it out every time, that builds those pathways in the brain we had been talking about um, that helps them to more quickly recognize the word the next time they see it. So um, in other words, like the sight words that I'm familiar with with kids that are learning to read, these are often words that have um, unusual spellings or, or some kind of a sound to them. Not necessarily, though, I guess, when I think about all of them. But but when you learn to read, as you learn to read, uh, many words become sight words for you that you don't necessarily have to sound out or, or uh, yeah, sound out, that you just, you know them, they're automatic, and you just read them. Right. Every word wants to be a sight every, word. Every word, right. <laughs> yeah. And that's the idea for proficient readers. So researchers are studying what proficient readers do, whereas some of the techniques that... Um, that teachers may have learned in, throughout the past 10, 20 years might be ones that um, give different prompts based on what the unskilled readers do. So that's kind of the interesting part about sight words is that phonics actually does still help with sight words. We don't have to try to memorize the you know 200 words by sight. Mm -hmm. So this process in the brain where your brain makes these connections over and over through looking at the phonetic parts of the word is known as orthographic mapping, okay. um, which is what I said earlier about being like similar to muscle memory in sports. The more you work on um, looking at the sounds of the word, even if there are tricky or irregular spellings, 
um, the number of times you practice that, and if you've, you know, you'll have a teacher supporting you, hopefully, with some of these words when you're working through them, that can help turn that word into a sight word. Um, it may take three or four times. It may take as many as 100 or more times. But um, brain researchers have studied what happens in the brain during the building of sight words, which is what I mentioned, orthographic mapping. So repeated exposure is important, but not effective if students are simply memorizing the word only by sight, okay. meaning the shape of the word or the order of the letters. So it's a little tricky to think about sight words. Right. Um, but it's not just visual repetition. Gotcha. And I think that the more I learn about memory in general, um, the brain learns things, commits things to memory um, in context. And so yes. there's always layers to it. And whether that is in the context of the different sounds or the, or the different, or the way it's spelled, or if you just are just trying to memorize it flat out without any kind of context, that is extremely hard for our brain. Our brain does not like to do that. <laughs> that that's not yes. how we do it. That's not how we operate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Besides phonics instruction, what else is important for beginning readers? There are so many aspects to learning to read that it feels impossible to try to say that one area is more important mm -hmm. to learning to read than another. Students need instruction in phonemic awareness, phonics, decoding mm -hmm. strategies, vocabulary, background knowledge, comprehension, fluency. There's so many aspects to reading. Uh, there's a great article and book published by Louisa Motes that's titled Teaching Reading is Rocket Science. Okay. So the title makes me laugh, but it's also a good reminder that learning to read is a profound skill that does require expert teachers. There's so much to understand. I'm finding myself learning more and more every day about reading, even after teaching it for 15 years. But that being said, there's one area that I do think frequently gets overlooked sometimes or okay. forgotten when talking about reading instruction, and that is the connection between reading and spelling, which most people would associate with writing. Okay. Reading instruction that includes a spelling component connected to the phonics instruction has been shown to be more effective for students learning to read. You can tell a lot about students' understanding of sounds, print, and meaning of words based on how they spell words. So that being said, too, I, I would personally say the most important thing, though, for teaching beginning readers mm -hmm. is simply help students fall in love with reading, find okay. it fun, help them love stories through read-alouds, find joy connecting with characters or events, um, because reading does take a lot of effort and it is a process. And when they are beginning to read, these are the years that you don't get back. You are providing that foundation for whether or not students become lifelong readers. So I just think the most important thing is to make it fun and help share that excitement for reading. Yeah, that takes me back. I remember um, thinking about when I first sent my, my, my oldest son to kindergarten. And the main thing that I wanted was just to them to love school so that they wanted to keep going back. And it's like the same thing with reading. Like you want them to enjoy reading and love reading so that they'll they'll read more. They'll just keep yes. reading. And there's so much that they can they can learn and experience from it. 
All right, Jenna. So what do you think are the main takeaways educators should know about helping beginning readers? Well, other than building a love for books and reading, it's, I think it's important educators understand that what might work for most of our students mm -hmm. does not always work for all of our students. But the research shows systematic, explicit, sequential instruction in phonics is effective at teaching 95% of our students and significantly supports the other 5%, which okay. would be those who have certain disabilities. Mm -hmm. So that mindset of if, if the way I've been teaching something doesn't work for even one or two of my students, to me, that's motivation to seek to understand what does work. And as decades of research have shown, phonics instruction will not harm a student. Mm -hmm. It's much easier and more effective to proactively teach these skills in the early years than it is to find out later, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, or beyond, where intervention is not shown to be quite as effective as earlier on, and then the gaps become a little bit more difficult to close. All right. Well, Jenna Engel, thank you so much for sharing your expertise of uh, how students learn to read with us. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I don't know if I'd call myself an expert for sure. I'm still learning so much. Thank you, Jenna. Okay, that wraps up another episode of Thriving Educators. I want to thank Jenna Engel for sharing her expertise with me. And if you're interested in the article we referenced in our conversation, you can find it at edweek.org with the title, How Do Kids Learn to Read? What the Science Says. Take care, everyone.